And uh, yeah, so in, in Acts 17, when Paul is at uh, Thess, uh, Berea, right, it says that uh, the Berean Christians were more noble than the, 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 the city he had been previously because they listened with eagerness and searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. So I can tell by conversations, both questions and conversations afterwards that you are uh, Berean Christians. That's good, right? There's uh, the, the authority that we have is the, the inspired word of God and God gifts teachers. I hope he's gifted me as a teacher. I hope to fuse that, but the authority is scripture. So take the things I'm saying, weigh them, test them, study the Bible and see if these things are so. So I appreciate your good questions and comments. Um, Remind you, we're creating a visual filing system, a memory palace, and we, when we walk in the first room, we see the, we see the um, a disco ball projecting the prayer hands, we see the prayer tattoo, maybe we hear, you got to pray, we say, yeah, yes, we, we begin and continue our study in a, in a posture of submission. God, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word, incline my heart to your statutes, right, that we... That prayer should be a regular part of our study. We go to the next room and we see all these different sport, sporting events and we say just like sports have particular rules and expectations, different genres of scripture have particular rules. And, and those are not imposed from the outside, but those are through a careful reading of those texts like we looked at Proverbs. Why is it that we have two apparently contradictory Proverbs? Is, does, is someone poor because they're lazy, or are they poor because injustice has swept away? The, well, the, even just paying careful attention, we see, oh, these are situational. These are situational proverbs that we have to have wisdom to know which situation applies to the case of poverty. So our Jeremiah 18, where, where, where God comes out and gives the condition, if I announce judgment and the nation repents, then I will relent, right? Then we, oh, these are some explicit conditions that are given. So good hermeneutics textbooks, good interpretation textbooks summarize those expectations that come through a careful reading of original text. So they're not being imposed randomly, but they're summarizing what's actually there if they're done rightly. So we're in the second room, right, with all the different genre wallpaper on the wall, and we're going to use this room a little bit longer. We're going we're gonna to fill it with sawdust, we're going to make it smell like the Kentucky State Fair. We take a big breath. It smells like a barn. And we're going to put a bull, which is not something you probably normally have in this room. You're going to have a bull in this room. And there's going to be a guy riding the bull. And there's going to be kicking up sawdust. You're going to be leaning back against the wall. Sawdust is coming up against you. And this is a reminder, right? Uh, and I often am teaching pastors, so, but this applies to all Christians, right, to, to stay on the bull. And what we mean, we're using this as an image to say, uh, to hold tightly to the biblical author's intent. What was the author intending to convey? And so we're using the bull here as a picture of powerful force that we don't control, but we cling to and follow, being the image of the, the author's intent. And, and God's word will take us places we might not expect. It will confront us and those to whom we're ministering with, in ways that we would not have prepared for. And our job is just to hold on and go where the texts go. 
goes. Now, I, again, I often am teaching pastors or people who, who plan to be pastors, and so this image is helpful for them. And I say, hey, when you're in a rodeo, if you've ever been to a rodeo, there are really two options. You're a bull rider, or what's the other option? You're a, you're a clown, right? So it's like, pastors, do you, you want to be a clown, like trying to get people's attention, trying to, is it all going to be based on your experience, how creative you are? Are you going to let this power of Scripture uh, you know, no one wants to be a clown in the rodeo. Everybody wants to be a bull rider. Having said that, I did have a, a middle-aged lady once from Texas who was in my class who was very outspoken. And she told me that bull imagery doesn't work for me at all. And she sent me an email of a woman in labor, right? And it's from, from the lady's head looking. There's this a big sheet on her big belly and everything. She's like, I, I see this and I say, focus on one thing. And I'm like, and I'm like okay. That doesn't work for me, but that works for you, and that's cool. So she's like, I, I like it because she, she took the mnemonic method, and she said, I'm going to use an image that captures for me the idea of focusing on the author's intent. What was the inspired author? What was Paul, Moses, David? What were they seeking to convey to their original audience? In Scripture, Paul says to Timothy, and by extension, he says to us as Christians seeking to be faithful— to do your best. Right? There are lots of different areas of our life where we strive for excellence. Maybe in our work, maybe we have a hobby that we really, really want to, you know, we want to, we take pride in baking the most amazing apple pie or in having the best golf game or whatever it is. But, but Scripture challenges us here. The Apostle Paul challenges Timothy, by extension, challenges us to, to excellence in our handling of Scripture, to not be shoddy, to not, be, uh, to, to not be haphazard. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Because if you think about it, when we're presenting God's Word, we're, we're presenting what God said. And so imagine, you know, I was talking, to, talking with Dan beforehand, and then he was speaking about this church and how he loves it. And it's not his church, but the the, the, the community that they have, the commonality they have. But imagine I, I, I said, yeah, I was talking with Dan before, and he told me how much he hated this church. Oh, my goodness, right? Dan would look at me. He'd be like, I, I, if I have any conscience, I should be ashamed, right? If I look at him and I see his face, because I've misrepresented him. I've said he said something that he didn't say. You think about it. The scripture is what God has said. We don't want to misrepresent God. We don't want to say something that he didn't say through his inspired apostles and prophets, right? We don't want to be ashamed. We want to correctly handle, to rightly handle the word of truth. If you come to Southern, uh, over the, this part of this verse is in Greek, over the top of, of the front of the seminary. It's orthotamunta is, is the word that's translated here, correctly handle. I don't usually like to cite Greek uh, when I'm teaching, but uh, if you listen to that, ortha orthotamunta. Well, think about orthodontics is the straightening of your teeth, or orthopedics is straightening like bones. Orthotamunta, to, to not make crooked, to not twist, but to straightly, straightly deliver the scripture, untainted as it was intended, right? To, to, to rightly handle. So this verse just reminds us there's a right way to handle the Bible, and that means there's a wrong way to handle the Bible. You can't just just quoting the Bible doesn't mean we're quoting it accurately. Now, students can sometimes, I've found, this can make them fearful. Right? They can be like, 
when there's a health, there's a healthy reverence, but then there's a there's a unhealthy fear that's like, oh, I'm paralyzed because I don't want to misinterpret the Bible. I'm, I can't. That's I don't think that's um, that's in, we're not intended to be paralyzed of fear. We're just intended to have a healthy reverence, and we're also to remember that that God is a loving Father. And so, an analogy I've given to my students in class is is when when we moved into our new home and had these. I thought. My wife, did, my wife wanted white cabinets, but I thought they were beautiful, beautiful cherry cabinets. And uh, my little daughter, she was tiny then, she wanted to help sweep. So I gave her the broom, and she's like, bang, 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 with the broom. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's sweeping, but she's banging the cabinets with the broom. It's like, ah, 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 you know, don't do that. So, of course, I went to Dollar Tree, got a broom, cut it off, and put a rubber thing on the end, so it's good. But imagine she came home from college now she's in her 20s or something she said she said hey i want to sweep bang 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 i'll be like oh baby come on <laughs> you know you're destroying our kitchen right there's a difference between between being a young and growing christian who's making mistakes but I, we don't want to stay there right we don't want to we don't want to stay immature All, everyone in here can look back i can look back and think about things i've taught or misunderstood and i've grown but I want, to, I want to grow. I don't want to be, we don't want to be content to be immature um, disciples. We want to grow in our own, we want to handle Scripture patiently. And God, God, correctly, God is patient with us. He's patient with us as we grow um, in, in our interpretation. We look in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, trying to show that the Bible does show there's a right and a wrong way to handle Scripture, and we need to be concerned to handle it rightly. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter writes, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Footnote, this is called dual authorship, concurrent authorship. Both Paul and God wrote the script. We can say this is Paul's letter. We can also say this is God's word, right? Because Paul, every word he wrote was the word that God wanted him to write. So it's God's word, it's also Paul's letter. And Peter continues to talk about Paul here. Verse 16, he says, He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. doesn't say it's impossible to understand. It says it's hard to understand. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. The point being... Just quoting the scripture doesn't mean we're quoting it accurately. Just teaching the scripture doesn't mean we're teaching it accurately. In fact, it's possible to so distort and twist the meaning of scripture that we're teaching heresy or a false gospel and bringing, um, you know, bringing destruction to ourselves and our hearers if that is the case. There's a lot, a lot of potential distortions before heresy that we don't want to do either. We want to rightly handle the word of God. But in this case, it was such a severe distortion that it was actually heresy, right? Um, William Shakespeare said the devil can cite scripture for his own purpose, right? And if you, if you look in uh, the temptation narrative of Jesus, uh, when Jesus is tempted, the devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 91. He will give his angels orders concerning you that they will support you with their hands. So in other words, here's the devil actually quoting the Bible to try to convince Jesus to do something that he should not do. So 
as we're talking about the, the intent, the author's intent of Scripture, the meaning of Scripture, I'm going to draw upon the language of one of my mentors, Robert Stein. And you'll see why we're doing this in just a moment. But Robert Stein, he's retired now, but he wrote a book on interpretation. He says, I want to distinguish meaning from implication. Meaning is the paradigm or principle that the author consciously willed to convey by the shareable symbols, by the writing he or she used. So this, just, you know, this is what Paul wanted the Galatians to understand. This is what, what Moses wanted the ancient Israelites to understand. That's the meaning. And then there's all kinds of implications, the sub-meanings of a text that legitimately fall within the paradigm or principle will by the author, whether he or she was aware of them or not. And a, a lot of careful interpretation is first knowing the meaning, like really getting your mind around the meaning, and then being able to faithfully draw and say, okay, what are the implications now that flow directly from this meaning? The analogy might be like, it's hard work, you're, dig you're digging the channel, you're digging this trench, you're digging it as you're studying to determine the meaning. But once it's dug, the implications flow more naturally within that trench. It's a little bit, so the hard work is often just determining the meaning. This will become more clear as we think about a specific example. So, an example that Stein uses in Ephesians, in, in his text, and I'll use it too, is Ephesians 5.18. Ephesians 5.18 Paul writes to the Ephesians, do not get drunk with wine, right? Do not get drunk with wine. And so imagine that Paul visits Ephesus a few months later and he surprises the Ephesian congregation like, like your pastor was surprised last night with his 10th anniversary uh, thing and unfortunately had tooth surgery so he couldn't eat all the delicious food y'all had for him. So you should have another event soon for him. But the... Uh, so Paul shows up, and, and everyone is drunk. And he says, hey, did you get my letter? Yeah, we got your letter. <laughs> did, what's that? What's that? Well, we've only gotten drunk with beer since we got the letter. We never get drunk with wine now. Would, would Paul, would he say, my bad? Yeah, I should have been more clear. I'm so sorry about that. Of course not, right? Of course not, because that's a clear implication right so it's a very t Paul is saying don't take substances into your body to the point where you lose control and dishonor yourselves and other people through those through that through taking in those substances right which would apply to all kinds of things that didn't exist at that time like vodka and bourbon and don't get drunk with bourbon either don't get when I was driving here this morning, I had a car pull in front of me on those icy roads, and I smelled marijuana. <laughs> it was like, oh, Ohio's like Kentucky. The same thing happens in Kentucky all the time, right? You're dry, I, I don't, it seems like there are a lot of people driving around smoking marijuana. And um, that would be an example. Getting high on marijuana where you're endangering other people on the roads is a, through, through doing this would be an example of taking a substance into your body such that you are uh, dishonoring yourselves and other people, right? So there's those implications that flow, with, flow from that. Our, we'll, we'll come back to this as we're not dealing with it exhaustively. We'll just put a little footnote there. Another example would be Paul's letter to the Galatians, right? Paul is writing to the Galatians. The Galatians, people are trying to confuse them and say, you need to be circumcised. You need to obey the food laws to really be saved. Paul saying, no, you do not need, you do not. Christ is the sufficiency for you, not... You don't obey the food laws. You don't need to get circumcised. Probably none of us are weighing the, I mean, 
there are some unusual communities where this is an issue, but probably in here, no one is saying, hey, do I need to get circumcised to really be accepted by God? Do, do we need to obey the Jewish food laws? However, I, just this last week, I was running with a, a student at Southern, and he confessed, he, he was telling me a little bit about his life, and he said, I figured out that I have OCD. And he was telling me how he figured this out, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and how a lot of his life, he always felt like, I have to get everything perfect or God's not pleased with me. If I don't, like he really wasn't trusting in the death of Jesus to cover his sins. He had to be perfect. He had to get it all right. So the mess, Galatians has a really good message for him, right? The death of Jesus is what makes you acceptable to God, not you being able to get everything in your life obsessively perfect, right? Um, uh, another, well, yeah, and. I guess, I, I guess I'll go this way a little bit. Let me, let me step back to the Ephesians 5.18. So, do not get drunk with wine. At one level, let me see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my screen, put this. At one level, um, that's just, we're just at part of the interpretation there, aren't we? Um, because if we keep reading, right, Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit, right? Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery but instead be filled with the Spirit of God. And so I, uh, it's hard to keep all this you know, without breaking it up into pieces, but let me, let me think about it like this. Um, right? when, we, when we think about, so this is a kite. I'm not a very good drawer, but that's supposed to be a kite. And um, here we are. To, to, really, to really hold to the author's intent is to hold tightly to the string so it doesn't fly away to who knows where. Right? You've got to hold on to the string. But there's also these redemptive winds that blow through Scripture that must be honored as well. And, and, and the redemptive winds are fulfill, fulfillment in Christ. And that's right on the, that's Ephesians 5.18, it's just on the other, other side of the verse. It's not, it's not hidden. It's, in other words, if we, if we just teach this text, don't get drunk with bourbon, don't get drunk with wine, don't get high on marijuana, don't get high on vodka, don't get, don't over, don't get high on opioids, don't get blah, 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 blah. Then, then that's, that's like holding the kite and it's on the ground, right? We're holding the string, but it's not really reflecting the fullness of the teaching that shows the fulfillment of this passage in, in knowing and, and loving Christ. So we're coming to that, but I, I just had to say that because I don't want you to think, you know, just swinging a stick around, don't get drunk with this, don't get drunk with that, well, is really covers the fullness of that text, right? Um, we also, when we think about implications, like if I were, if I were preaching or teaching on that text, um, we, I think we could say, you know, there's implications beyond simply physical substance abuse. So people... It's, it's talking, there's two ways to feel full in life. One is to be filled with the Spirit of God, and the other one is trying to fill your soul with other things because you have an emptiness. And, and certainly it's very easy to see substance abuse as, a, as an attempt to do that. People getting drunk, people getting high, people getting, getting addicted to, to opioids, and it's very destructive. But there are other more socially acceptable ways that people try to fill their soul too, right? And again, if I were teaching this, I'd say, Paul's talking about physical abuse here of substances, but we also try to fill that emptiness with relationships, right? People get, you know, get in uh, illicit relationships with 
with money, shopping, with whatever, all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of things that people are trying to fill their soul with um, that will never satisfy, and that will only lead to problems in their life as opposed to being filled with the Spirit of God. Let's think about, let's think about, um, let me restart this here. Um, another, another passage, we're talking about authorial intent, holding tightly to the biblical author's intent. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, The Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. It's the truth that I'm trying to lose weight. Uh, and when I step on a scale that makes me heavier, I, I hate it too. But that's, that's not what this is talking about. <laughs> that's just something that flies in your head, right? That's not what this is talking about. Also, you look at it, it's like, well, it's just a factual statement. God hates this, he likes this. Yes, but it's a proverb. It's calling us to action. Part of the genre of proverb is calling us to action. And we think about Solomon and his wisdom recording this proverb. What is he, what is he trying to teach us and call us to action? In the ancient world, what were scales used for? They were used to weigh agricultural produce. They were used to weigh precious metals, right, for these sorts of things. Some of you, who's ever been to a, a developing country where you go in the market and people are holding scales and stuff? Has anyone experienced that? Yeah. So you go and you got like, the scales got a, two sides and on this side someone puts a little five kilo block and on this side they put a stack of mangoes and they balance and you buy five kilo worth of mangoes. But what if that five kilo weight actually was hollow in the middle? So it, it, it only weighed four kilos. So every time someone pays for five kilos, they're really just getting four kilos. Well, that's, that's a dishonest scale. That's cheating people. So it's, God doesn't, says the Lord doesn't, the Lord abhors cheating people in business practices, right? But accurate weights are his delight. But he delights in people being honest and forthright and faithful in their financial dealings, right? How many of you use scales to sell things? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, so this, this proverb doesn't apply to us. No. <laughs> no. We got the meaning. What are the implications? You're like, yeah, it's really, it's not just about scale. It's about honesty and business practice. Are there opportunity? Yeah, there's all kinds of issues of honesty and dishonesty in business practice. My first job outside the home was working at Shoney's. So I was driving down this road, I saw the big boy, right? It was taking me back to the day. And uh, I tell people my first job was as a bartender. I was the salad bartender. I would cut up, <laughs> cut up the uh, lettuce and put it out and all that stuff. And um, I, I got a quick uh, initiation into the world. Back then, you, you clocked in and out with a physical card, right? You ka and uh, so you were paid based on how long you were at the restaurant. And the people I worked with uh, were dishonest. They would clock each other in early and clock each other out late. Like they leave and then their buddy would clock them out later. So that basically they're stealing 10 or 15 minutes of time every day from, from the employer. Right? That's, that's an example of dishonesty in business practice. At the same time, we have to, we have to remember like when we come to this, uh, the, right, we're holding tightly to the kite. We say, yeah, see, God loves and cares about integrity and honesty in all that we do. And as a disciple of his, I'm called to that. But, but it also calls us to repentance and humility and say, 
would any of us want to stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment and say, well, you have a choice. You can either depend on Christ's righteousness or you can depend on your complete honesty and integrity in all your business practice. <laughs> I'm going to depend on Christ because uh, I'm thinking about that time I had that conversation and I sold that and did, should I told them? You know, there's, all of us have, have moments of failure or regret or things we need to go back and make right or have made right, you know, and, and uh, so the, the text challenges us to be faithful disciples while also reminding us we can never have a righteousness that depends on ourselves that will stand up to the scrutiny of God's holiness. We must depend on the righteousness of Christ. Matthew 13. So we're talking again, we're illustrating authorial intent and the importance of authorial intent. Hold tightly to the bull. Hold on to that bull. Go where it goes. Okay, in Matthew 13, so the background of this is when, uh, when I was about 30 years old, I finished seminary, and my wife and I, we bought our first home. And uh, the lady we bought it from found out that I was a seminary professor. I'd been hired as a new professor. And she, she, was, she, was, in the, she was in the Bible study fellowship, so she was coming to faith. Maybe she was a genuine believer then, but she was also in a liberal mainline church. And she had, no, she had no way to understand what was happening in her life with all that. So she's like, I want to, can you and your wife come? I have questions about the Bible. So we went, we, this is great. You know, someone's talking about the Bible. So we went to her, her home. It was just her, her husband, I think, was traveling on business. And she said, I have a question. In Matthew 13, our pastor read this parable, and we looked at it. Jesus told him a parable, you know, it's a, where, the, where the guy, when he's sleeping, people come and sow weeds in the field, and the servants say, should we pull the weeds up? No, wait until the end, and then pull them up and, and put them, uh, collect the weeds and burn them, and then gather the weed into the barn. And she said, uh, her name was Shannon, she said, and the pastor, this is a liberal, uh, liberal church, a non-church that didn't believe really the scriptures. He said, the pastor read this, and then he said, now each one of us have weed in our lives and weeds in our lives, and we need to cultivate the weed in our life, and we need to pull out the weeds and, and become more virtuous people and things like that. She said, but when I kept reading the chapter, I got down here to verse 43, and well, it says, this is talking about people being cast into hell and other, pe and other people going to live with God. For She's... And she li literally had no category. She's like, what in the world? And I said, well, I said, I do know something about the church you attend. And just frankly, it's a church where the idea of hell is offensive to those people. Probably your pastor thinks hell is offensive and he, he, he doesn't want to, he doesn't believe it. And he knows that the congregation, if he were to teach it, would be offended and wouldn't like it. So he has basically taken that text and not paying attention to what Jesus was teaching through the parable, not paying attention to what Matthew in retelling the parable and giving us the interpretation wants us to understand. He's taken it and just slapped on a meaning that's acceptable and, and desirable to that community. Uh, and that's his, his not, his, his gotten, his, if we can give the analogy, he's gotten off the bull and he's being a clown, right? He's being a clown. And, the, and maybe the, the congreg that congregation wanted to hear that. It's easy sometimes for us to, to criticize that in, in liberal Christianity, but conservative Christianity can do that too. We, we're, we're, we're not respecting what the text is actually saying, and we're using it uh, in some other way. Um, I'm going to give, 
I guess I could give an example for myself. So um, I've only preached in Southern's Chapel three times, and that's fine with me over 20 years, right? Because it's a, it's a high-stakes, pressurized environment. You know, the president's sitting down there looking at you and all your colleagues. Like, I don't, I don't really want to do that as, unless I have to. Uh, but the first time I was asked to preach was um, years ago, and, and I thought, well, I don't know if I'll ever do this again. What, what, do, what does Southern Seminary need to hear? I want to give a message about humbly serving one another. Yeah, so the foot washing, right, would be a good text. So that's what we So then I began studying the text, and it became clear to me that humble service was a secondary theme of the text. But the real theme of the text was Jesus' love. You know, it begins, having loved his own who were on, in the world, he now loved them to the end. And I was like, that's not what I really wanted to preach on. I wanted to preach on humble service, not on love. But so that's, I had to make a decision. Like, am I going to hold on to the bull? Am I going to go where the text goes, where the inspired author wants me to go? Or am I going to go another way? Thankfully, I, I chose the right way that day, and I think it made a difference in the, because the, the, the power of the, of the teaching is in the power of the word, not, not in me. Um, we could... Let's look at an example from a Baptist state paper. So this is a religion, religious paper from a Baptist association. Have it in my office, and they have a little devotional section. And uh, the devotional section says, memorize the scripture. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, which is a bit of a strange scripture to memorize if you think about it, if you know the book of Judges. And then, and then the application, pray this prayer, Lord, help me to realize other people have ideas and feelings too. Now... This is true. Other people do have ideas and feelings too. But if you know the book of Judges, it's a repeated refrain that people are not living under, the, under God's instructions, but instead are following their own desires, doing what's right in their own eyes rather than what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So this is not a statement like everybody has different feelings and we should respect those. This is a statement of, of hor horror at rebellion. Right? So this is a primo example of a conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing newspaper that is totally not being faithful to the meaning of the text or the implications of the text, right? And it's dangerous to do that because it teaches other people to do that, right? It, it's dangerous, right? Um, God says in Jeremiah 23, 29, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer, that breaks a rock in pieces. We want to, that's where the power is. We want to be faithful to that. Now, uh, I met Cale when I came in, and he was going down to work in the children's ministry. So praise the Lord for people working in the children's ministry. When I first came to the church where I am now, first volunteer, I was, had a PhD in New Testament, but I was like, I want to dive in. I want to show, I want to be helped where you need help. Toddlers, right, two-year-olds. And there were like oceans of them washing, we, you know. It was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, I mean, doing toddler Sunday school is difficult, right? And um, ch children's literature, both Sunday school literature and books for children's, many times are not careful hermeneutically. And uh, the, a lot of what they do is just bounce off the, the text with stories or... You know, they, 
in a way that is not really paying attention to, to what the biblical author is teaching. So I'll give an example of this. Um, so this is from um, a, a Bible, a kid's Bible that someone gave us. And so uh, the, looking at the story of Joseph and his coat, this debate is many color coat, long sleeve coat, his special coat that his dad gave him. So here we, here we have an application. Do you have a favorite sweater or jacket or shirt that you like to wear? We know from this Bible verse, Genesis 37.3, that Joseph had a favorite article of clothing to wear. It was his robe. Joseph loved his robe because his father made it for him. Whenever he wore the robe, he could imagine that it was his father giving him a hug. What colors do you see in Joseph's beautiful robe? And we're looking, we're like, how long do we have snack time here? Are we, who's preaching today? Are we going to be on time or is it going to be late? Oh, well, then let's talk about, you see green, yes, you see yellow, yeah, yes, yes, let's all talk about that. Um, a boy's grandma wanted to make something special for him. She wanted it to remind him of how much she loved him. She decided to knit him a sweater. When she gave the sweater to her grandson, she said, imagine that this warm sweater is me giving you a hug. Every time you wear it, the boy loved the sweater. It was his favorite thing to wear. Now let's go around and share some presents that people gave us, and we can feel happy about what and you think. Wait, is that what the text is about, that Joseph got a special present, so we should reflect on the special presents that we have? Is that, is that really? Isn't, isn't the point of the detail, and I think it's, a, a, it's pretty clear if you read the text, the point of the detail is to illustrate the favoritism and dysfunction of the family, right? One of the children was treated differently. The other children despised and, and resented it to the point where they faked his murder and sold him as a slave into Egypt, right? Yet, God was working there, right? And we read in Genesis 50, I think it's 50, Genesis 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil... God worked for good. What you worked for evil, God was working for good. It was, in other words, this is really an encouraging story that even though life is unfair and people, there will be favoritism and there will be injustice, God is still on his throne and will accomplish his saving purposes. They cannot be thwarted. Even through those opposing you and his work, God is not is not failing to be on his throne, and he, can work, he is working through that. And so, um, do children understand injustice and unfairness? 100%. They have the right in there. He got that, and I got this. <laughs> Reminds me, I don't know if you all know Don Whitney, the guy who writes about spiritual disciplines. His wife is an amazing artist, and she, for some reason, she thought my youngest daughter looked like what she wanted to draw, so she drew this huge picture of her, entered in the competition, and won it, and everything, and... Uh, they said, you can just have the picture. You got, we, we can have it. It's our daughter, just for the price of the framing. So it's sitting, sitting this gigantic picture in the living room. And my daughter from college came home yesterday. She goes, what is that? <laughs> Why does she get a gigantic picture? We're like, oh, well, now you need to understand what, how, where this came from. <laughs> so there's a sense of injustice, right, that, that, that children have when they see an uh, unfairness. Um, and, and yet... That's, so I, I'm going to compare the, the first, the, the application from this, from this written text. It's sort of like feeding kids a plate full of Twinkies. It's like, hey guys, eat some Twinkies. Whereas actually what the text is about, like God, sovereign, the comfort of God's sovereignty in the midst of injustice, that's like eating a meal of potatoes, like a meat and 
potatoes and vegetables. Like that's a balanced, healthy diet, right? To, to hold to the biblical author's intent. All right, so as we think back through these, we have, uh, remember the first room, we have the, the disco ball. So prayer, we see the prayer hands, the prayer tattoo. Uh, we need to pray. Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Incline our heart towards your statutes. And then we go to the next room. We see all the different genres, right? We see the different, rule, the different sports, basketball and soccer and all this. And we think, yeah, there's, the Bible isn't just a library. isn't a book. It's a library. It's got, it's got apocalyptic. It's got narrative. It's got poetry and prophecy. And I can't treat them all the same way. I need to respect the way they're, the rules that the author's intended for me to, to follow in reading them. In the same room, we have the bull. We have the, right, the sawdust. We can smell the state fair. We, 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 see, we, got, we want to hold tightly to the author's intent. Or if you like, you can put your hospital bed there, giving birth. Focus on one thing, right? Holding to the biblical author's intent. Going where that goes. Not failing to hang, hang on. We don't want to be a clown. We, wanna, we don't want to just bounce off the text to what we want to talk about. We want to be faithful to what the biblical author. We want to hold on to the kite string. Really tight. Yes, we need the winds, redemptive winds that find their fulfillment in Christ blowing through, but we want to hold tightly to that string as well. We have about uh, 12 minutes before lunch, so I'm going um, to go a little bit further, okay? And then we'll take some more questions during lunchtime. So the next room, so we go out of the room with the, with the uh, wallpaper and with the, the bowl. We go to the next room. And in this room, I place the images from, from a famous painting from the time of Martin Luther. And this is a painting by Peter Cronach the Elder. And in this painting, you have on, on one side, you have all the people in the congregation. And then you have Luther, right? This was painted by someone who knew Luther from the time of Luther. You have Luther up in the pulpit. Uh, and, and what's significant is Luther, if you look carefully, it may be hard to see up here, but he has one hand on the Bible, like his finger on the text, and then the other hand is pointing to Jesus on the cross. And if you look at all the congregation, they're not looking at Luther, they're looking at Jesus on the cross, except for one person, and she's staring out at us. And that's encouraging. There's always going to be someone, Steve, who doesn't pay attention. Even if, even if Jesus were crucified in front of them and Luther were preaching about it, they still would be looking off. No, but some of you are, uh, if you see the lady, she has a little headband, a dark headband on. She's staring at us. Probably, yes, we know. She's probably from the family that paid for the painting, and this is some way of giving a sort of a, a way of saying, yes, her family, she's looking at us to say, look what, look what we did. We paid for this painting or something like that. There's some symbolism there that escapes us, right? But the point of the picture, the point of putting these, I, in, my, in my sunrise, I think there's Jesus on the cross, there's people looking at him, there's Luther pointing to him, is that when we interpret the Bible, when we're reading it for ourselves, when we're preparing a Sunday school lesson, if we're a preacher, we're pre we, we have to say, how is this text about Jesus? In fact, Steve, you'll be encouraged by this. I was talking to someone before the, the session, and they were talking about how they came to your church and what they're attracted to, and they, they said, here, this, the sermons are different. They, one is they're not just topical. They're working through Scripture, but they always talk about Jesus. They always point to who Jesus They're Christocentric. It's like, what a, what a wonderful uh, endorsement of, of your preaching and of this church. And uh, so when we're, not only when we're hearing teaching, 
But when we're in the Bible ourselves, we need to ask, how is this text about Jesus? You say, well, is that just a, is that just a slogan, you know, Christocentric? No, no, the Bible teaches that the, it's about Jesus. In John 5, 39, Jesus said to his contemporaries, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Is it possible to know a lot about the Bible but not to miss the, to miss the point of the Bible of coming to know God through Christ? Absolutely it is possible to do that. Um, in Luke 24, 27, on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus is with those two disciples, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So there's, when Jesus interpreted the Bible, it was Christocentric. He says, let's go here through the Old Testament and see how these things point to me. How is the Bible all about Jesus? Well, there's a bunch of different ways that it's all about Jesus, and we're going to just quickly run through them, and then we'll take a lunch break then. So these are bullet points about different ways that the Bible is all about Jesus. One is texts that are explicitly about Jesus. If you read through the Gospels where Jesus is healing someone, he's teaching something, he's going somewhere, it's hard to miss the point that the text is telling us about who Jesus is and why he came, what he did. But then there, and there are also te texts that explicitly point to Jesus. We might describe these as propositional prediction. So it's like someone pulled an arrow back in, in history and that arrow was a prophecy, boom. And then as it flies through, flies through history, boom, it lands in one place. It lands in the, the, the life and ministry historically of Jesus in Galilee, first century. For example, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The only place that finds fulfillment is in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, right? Boom, that's where it lands. That's many times when people think about prophecy, that's the only kind of prophecy they think about. But many of the, many of the texts in the Old Testament uh, function to to lead us to Jesus in, in different ways. And many of the texts in the Old Testament, bullet point number three, are texts showing us our need for Jesus. Right? They, the, the, throughout the Bible, we read of the holiness of God. We read of his expectations of his people. And when we read these, it's like a, it's like a spiritual audit. And the audit comes back bankrupt. Spiritually, we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. Let me just point out one, one way this works in the Old Testament. So if you look in the book of Exodus, God has rescued his people out of Egypt. And then they're at Mount Sinai, chapter 19. Chapter 20, God gives them the Ten Commandments. We follow with all of these amazing rules, laws that reveal his holy nature, reveal his expectations for his people. And then what's the first thing that happens after this giving of all these laws? Exodus 32. They make a Aaron for them at their request, makes, an, makes idols, golden calves that they, they worship, right? They worship golden calf. And then uh, you say, well, okay, but maybe they just needed the priesthood. Okay, let's flip over to Leviticus. And the beginning of Leviticus, we have all these rules about uh, the tabernacle and the offerings and what, what the priests are to do. And then chapter 8, the ordination of Aaron and his sons. And then what's the first thing that happens after that? Two of the sons... Uh, Nadab and Abihu, they disobey. They go do something that was just forbidden to them, and fire comes out from uh, the altar and incinerates them. 
right? So you're like, wow. So here God has visibly appeared to them. He's given them his laws. The first thing they do is pile into idolatry. Then he gives them, explains the priesthood, gives them, they're ordained. And the first thing that happens is um, they violate the instructions given and they're incinerated. So we, we think, wow, this the there's, we, need, we need a righteousness that's more dependent. We need a better priesthood than this. We need, we need a better sacrament. We need, we need something that can really deal with, with our sin. And so throughout much of the Bible, whenever you think whenever there's a moral command, whenever there's a moral demand, in, in some ways it's exposing our spiritual need for a righteousness outside of ourselves. Many of the texts in the Old Testament as well, as they're quoted in the New Testament, are bullet point number four, how much more so in Jesus' text? How much more so in Jesus' text? So the technical term for this is typology, biblical typology. And so it's where the New Testament authors are saying, you know, they're referring to David as king or referring to priesthood or they're referring to the Passover. The Passover is, you know, yeah, there's a Passover, but now Jesus is the Passover lamb who has come. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right or uh, you know there were there were king there were kings after God's own heart like David but now in Jesus we have a, we have a true son who who pleases the Father perfectly who who doesn't commit murder and adultery even even as he's one who is described with such David's described with such praiseworthy terms and um, or yeah just all these different we have the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament where God meets with His people. Uh, but, uh, but they violate, again, they corrupt the temple. The priesthood is corrupt. And we see uh, Jesus says, uh, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He, his temple spoke of was his body. So the true temple of God, the true lasting priesthood. You know, he sits down after he provided the sacrifice once for all for sins. He sits down at the right hand. There's not continual offering of sins. As the author of Hebrews points out, that Jesus' priesthood is unique and eternal. So Jesus is the true priest. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true Passover. Passover lamb. Jesus is the true place where God meets his people, uh, not, not in a physical temple, but in, the, in his person. So that's the how much more so in Jesus. It's called biblical typology. And a lot, a lot of the New Testament texts are pointing back to these anticipations of the fulfillment that would come in Jesus. And then another way that the, the Bible points to Jesus is what I've entitled an organic retrospective. This sounds like the whole foods approach right here. But what we're talking about is when the Bible's teaching ethics, how we should behave, it's often, it's, look, it's looking back, retrospective, and how that, that ethic grows organically out of the gospel. It's not just, okay, now you're a Christian, let me give you a list of things you should do. You shouldn't lie, you shouldn't cheat, you should be kind to people. It's like whenever I drive around and people have that little sign in their yard, be kind. I think, wouldn't that be nice if people just could be? <laughs> but let's be honest. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> that, that, that just doesn't happen naturally, right? And, and uh, so in other words, like in Ephesians 4.32, it does say be kind. It says be kind. But it says be kind and compassionate to one another just as in Christ, right? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you, right? There's always that why, how and why can we live this way? Because in Christ, God has done thus for, thus for us. So it, the, the, the moral commands flow out of what we've ex, the grace we've experienced. That's what gives us the ability to obey them. The, the presence of his spirit and the work that he has done 
that enables us then to be, to be those people. That's a super quick overview of different ways that the Bible is Christocentric. In the early days of the church where I, where I served as an elder for many years, we had this practice, which, which eventually didn't happen any longer, but it, it would have been good to, that after the sermon was preached, um, some of the leaders, we had this evaluation sheet, and we would, we would have to sort of self-evaluate the sermon. And one of the questions was, did this sermon make you treasure Jesus and his finished work more deeply? That's a good question. When we study the scripture, even if it's just in the morning on our own, or we're preparing a child, children's Bible study lesson, or we're preparing a Sunday school lesson, or preparing a talk for a woman's conference, like we have to ask ourselves, I want to I hold to the author's intent, but I want to make sure I reflect the redemptive flow of scripture. Am I leading people to treasure Christ and his finished work through the study of this text? Right? That's a, that's a good question for us. We have like two minutes left, so I'm going to quickly review. You need to pay attention because at the end I'm going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and, and, and go through these different images, just walking through the structure in your mind if you can do it. We're not going to give you a microphone, so don't be scared, but you're going to have to try to do it to your neighbor. So we started our memory palace. In the first room we see the, the disco ball. We see the prayer hands projected. See the prayer tattoo, you say, yeah, we, we pray. We begin, we approach the scripture in prayer. Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. And we continue to pray as we work through the scriptures. Go to the second room. We have all the different sporting events. There's different rules to sporting events. There's different expectations. There's different rules to different genres of scripture. We want to we wanna understand those. Virtually any biblical interpretation book you buy, well, about half of it will be going through different genres. You know, chapter one on poetry, chapter two on narrative, chapter, talking about the, the, the rules or patterns to, to understand the meaning. Then in that same room, uh, we also have, we have the bull. We hold tightly. We hold onto the bull, right? We stay on the bull. We go where the power of Scripture, seemingly unpredictable to us at the beginning, takes us. We don't get off and Try to figure it out ourselves. We hold tightly to the biblical author's intent. And then in the next room, we have that image of Luther, hand on the Bible. We have, we have a hand on the scripture. We're not, we're not just randomly, this makes me think about Christ, but how does this scripture text point to Jesus? And we have other people like, look at Jesus here. We're pointing to Jesus. You look at Jesus in this text too. So that's, we're to, we're to image number four. We have three more to go that we will pick up after lunch.